If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 82. Needless to say, this psalm has stirred much controversy. And as I read it, you'll understand why very quickly if you're not familiar with it. Much ink and opinion has been expressed. Even many popular books have been written concerning this psalm. Uh, But it's about God's judgment upon wicked rulers. That's the primary point of it. It's God's judgment on wicked rulers, on corrupt governments, uh, oppressed people. And what we see is that if this was a reality for God's people thousands of years ago, it means that it's just an ongoing reality of the fall, is that there are wicked rulers, wicked leaders, wicked governments that oppress people. So what do we do? How do we handle that? How do we live in light of it? And what does God's Word tell us to do? Well, first of all, God's people sang about it. God's people prayed about it. And this is what the people of Israel would have sang as they were experiencing unjust, wicked rulers. And so we should too. We should sing these songs. We should pray these words. For we're no different and that we deal with wicked oppressors as well. So let us hear Psalm 82, beginning in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince." Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the word of God. It begins with the word of judgment. In verses 1 through 2, that is the primary theme. And as you get to verse 8, you see again, is the word judge. This is about the ultimate judge of all earthly judges. One commentator translates verse 1 as this, as God is the chief magistrate. As we read, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. That is that God himself is the chief and the supreme ruler. And so this is a statement of, of God's own sovereign authority over any earthly rulers. Most rulers throughout history are blinded to the fact that they are under a higher authority. 
Why do I say that most rulers throughout time are blinded to the fact that they are under high authority? Because if they recognize that they were under an, a higher authority that sees all things, they wouldn't act the way they do. They wouldn't oppress the righteous and show partiality to the wicked. You just think of it in this sense is that if you've ever had a job, do you not act differently in front of the main boss than if you think you're by yourself? Well, you think about it this way. If a ruler realized that there was a greater authority over them that saw them at every moment, they wouldn't act as they do. They don't recognize it. They don't behave like that. Rulers are blinded to the fact that God is over them. What we see here in verse 1, in the midst of the gods, that is, that is Elohim. Elohim is the identification of God, even from the beginning of Genesis. And so this right here, gods, is applied to rulers that are gathered. And God judges in their midst. That he is judging them, or he is judging in their midst. And it's when we see this as that he is in their midst, it's speaking of God coming forward with some sort of special purpose. And the special purpose here is that God is going to judge the judges. As the chief magistrate, he is going to show judgment upon them. And it begins with this simple question in verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And so he calls these wicked rulers out for a crime of injustice to the righteous. That they abuse the righteous, they abuse the faithful, but they show partiality. And not just partiality to anyone, but specifically they show partiality to the wicked. Often the wicked are those we see in Scripture with great means. The wicked are oftentimes seen as the oppressor of the poor, of the fatherless, as will be identified in this, this psalm itself. It is usually the wicked is identified with those that have great means and they spurn the God that has created them. And that's certainly what's taking place here. And that word partiality, it means to turn your face towards and so if you think of this as those that are in need, those that are, that are the righteous, as, as they're looking for help from their rulers, their rulers turn their face away, but shine their face upon the wicked. And that's what it means to show partiality, is they ignore the cause of those that are hurting This idea of partiality is something that is continually mentioned throughout all of Scripture to where we could not even exasperate all that is said of what it means to be just. If you remember in Jehoshaphat's reforms, part of his, his, his reforms in Israel was to remove partiality. We read in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 7, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Notice what he, the, the statement here, how the connection of living in fear of God is directly related to showing impartiality. Because God is not partial to anyone. God does not take bribes. God is not, uh, does not, is not swayed 
by any created means like we are. Which is our constant temptation. And so God is calling out those wicked rulers that he calls gods, and he says to them, how long will you be unjust? How long will you be unjust by showing partiality? Partiality is an incredible sin. When one group is favored over another, partiality has taken place. And to experience partiality, we have to recognize if we're ever on the receiving of that end, it's not a benefit for the person or group receiving it, but rather it's a disadvantage to them. And God takes a stand against such rulers. And I hope we find comfort in this. You see something similar in Isaiah in chapter 3, in verse 13 through 15. It says, The Lord has taken his place to contend. Sounds very much like Psalm 82. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. In almost identical language to Psalm 82, Isaiah tells us that God is going to contend against those wicked rulers that would show partiality. They would favor the wicked over the righteous. That God stands on their behalf. And so on the one hand, there's great comfort in this reality to know that God does stand on behalf of the oppressed, but there's, there's also the reality that there's an oppressed. And that there's wicked people that will go after God's people. But that's just part and parcel part of human history. And so he commands them this in verse 3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. This is what a king is supposed to do. This is what any leader is supposed to do. This is what all men in positions of power are to do. And this idea of give justice, it's to vindicate, it's to settle this, or it's to make a decision. I think that it's the NSAB that translate this, give justice, is vindicate. And then there's four groups of people that are mentioned, the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, and the destitute. The weak is specifically the insignificant people in a society. The insignificant, the helpless. It might be those that sometimes people advert their eyes from. It's those that cannot help themselves. God says, vindicate. Give justice. That's what a ruler is supposed to do for the weak. But not only that, the fatherless. The fatherless is self-explanatory. It's, it's, it's orphans. And how they're taken advantage of. Rather, a leader is supposed to look out for them. The afflicted. An afflicted is one that is a victim of some sort of affliction from others. To be afflicted means you're the passive person in that and someone else has done something to you. That's what it means to be afflicted. And destitute just simply means poor. Those without means. Those that cannot take care of themselves. 
wicked rulers took advantage of those without a voice to help them. And think about that. Those that are described here are those that do not have a voice, a voice to defend themselves. And these wicked rulers that are mentioned here are the ones that take advantage of them and cast them out of their presence when they're most desperate. That's a sign of a wicked ruler. If you want to know what a wicked ruler is, look at, look at how they treat the insignificant in a society. How they handle justice. I think this is informing for us, just not to go off track here, but this is informing of us of how, if we are ever in positions of leadership, or how we think about leaders, is how are those without a voice treated? Are they treated as equals, or are they treated as something less than? Because what a reminder in the gospel, there's neither female nor male, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Verse 4 goes on to identify this group. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is a prayer that those would be rescued. That is who would be rescued that says the weak and needy, which is just a summary statement of, of the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, and the destitute. Those were without means. It's a pray that the Lord would rescue them. And what a comfort to know that the Lord hears them. The people in most need are listed not because they alone are worthy of protection. Because all are worthy of protection of, in this specific case, of the government. It is just that these are identified because certain groups are helpless. And that's what we should recognize. Often, those that are the fatherless, the afflicted, and the destitute, and the poor, the only ear that they have is the Lord's ear. Those are people that sometimes are, that are more in touch with their dependency upon the Lord because they know no other, other means of life. Often the only ear that they have is the Lord's ear. And so they cry out to the Lord day and night, and the Lord hears their prayers. The psalmist goes on to say of these wicked rulers, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. What does it mean that they have no understanding? It's simply this is these wicked rulers that are described here have no moral perception that is required to lead. Does the idea of showing partiality have something to do with the morality of a leader? Absolutely. Does the moral compass of a leader, remember this is speaking of rulers, this is speaking of leaders, does the moral compass of a leader matter? Yes. Yes, because 
Partiality, impartiality, is directly related to one's sense of morality. So here, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. It's that they don't have the capacity, they don't have the moral perception required to leave. They do not have any conscience of their duties, of their responsibility. And specifically, it says that they walk in darkness. And we just have to, we just have to pause for a second and think of this in, in, in the reality of the full canon of Scripture. What does it mean that they walk in darkness? They do not have the light of the gospel. You think about what Jesus says in John in chapter 8 and verse 12. And by the way, this is, this is after the Feast of Booths and there's lighting of these massive candles and um, lights in, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have looked like a spotlight that was coming out of it on the final day of the Feast of Booths. And Jesus says that on that, that final day in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus is applying this. This is one of Jesus' I am statements. I believe that he, he's saying, I am that, that pillar of light that you, you followed in the wilderness. But he's also teaching us something important here, that if you're not following that light, what are you doing? You're walking in darkness. But whoever does follow Christ will not walk in darkness. There's something interesting we have to, to note about just human nature. There are many exemplary leaders and rulers throughout church history that have done tremendous things that we would admire and say, that was a wonderful leader. That was a wise leader, and they did not know Christ. You can think of many of the founders of our own country. Many of them were deist. Thomas Jefferson did not believe in Christ. He did not have the light of the gospel. But yet he's one of the wisest politicians and leaders that this country has ever seen. Well, how is that? Well, he had natural light had a natural law written on his heart. You think about Paul appealing to the Roman government instead of the Jews to try him. Why would he appeal to pagans? Because he saw their system was just. Natural light can tell us don't murder and this is how you should handle murderers. And so there can be those leaders throughout history that we, we admire and say they did good things, but ultimately, at the end of the day, any worldview or ideology that's developed apart from a risen Savior will at some point go off the rails. And why is that? Because even a great mind like Thomas Jefferson cannot lead for God's glory. He will lead for the good of people, or for some altruistic view of things, or he will lead for his own glory. But he can't lead for the glory of God, can he? And so there's a sense in which even the best leaders are darkened and are unjust because they seek their own glory 
rather than the Lord's. This is the plight of mankind. This is what we've experienced since our existence. Ever since Cain built the first city and government came into place, we've dealt with wicked rulers that when they have power, they take advantage of that power. When they have influence, they use it for their own selfish gain. That's not a political statement. That's just the reality of wicked people that walk in darkness, right? So what's the future? Look at verse 6. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, before we get into how this impacts us, uh, this, is, th- this and verse 1 have been controversial verses. There's three primary views of these words uh, of these of these verses here, and if you read them and you you think, why does God's word call rulers Elohim? Well, there's three views. One view is that there were God is addressing the gods of the other nations around them. We would reject that view right off the bat. Another view is this is speaking of the spiritual world view. And you'll notice where it starts in in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he he holds judgment. And then verse 6, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. And so there's this spiritual uh, worldview of this, and, and that's for many reasons. One, because they're called Elohim, they're called gods, there's this divine council, and there's also some other passages of Scripture that maybe lend credence to this view. That this is speaking of some sort of spiritual council where God is, is judging the spiritual world. You see in Isaiah 24, 21, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. So that seems to give some credence to this could be a a spiritual council that's before the Lord. In Daniel, you see also some interesting passages that that teach us of of a spiritual reality. Let me just read them really quickly in Daniel chapter 10, in verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And in verse 20 of Daniel, we read this. Then they said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. This is speaking of a spiritual battle. It's not speaking of a physical human battle that's taking place. It's speaking of something spiritual, something unseen that we can't see, but God's word reveals is taking place. And in chapter 12 of Daniel, again, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone 
whose name shall not be written in the book of life. So you see these examples of this spiritual unseen world that's taking place. And so many would see Psalm 82 as God addressing those leaders there. This passage is also, this is not a, a third view that I'm going to give as any serious view, but I just want you to be aware of it, is that there is another view that is used by charismatics. And they specifically reference John, which we'll go to in chapter 10, where Jesus quotes these words. Um, but I, I even went back and, and made sure I remembered this correctly and listened to part of one of her messages. And so let me just tell you, sometimes sermon prep is painful. I went and listened to about 30 seconds of Joyce Meyer, and she said that this was, this was an example of the fact that God calls us gods. And in charismatic circles, and all of your big name charismatic people hold to this you become a little god theology. Joyce Meyer is a big proponent of it. You'll hear it from uh, Kenneth Copeland. You will hear it from Joel Osteen. You will hear it from all of those charismatic authors. They believe you'll become little gods, and they use this passage for that. We laugh, but I'm sorry, Joyce Meyer is selling a lot more books than R.C. Sproul did. So it's really not a laughing matter. We, we have to be aware of some of their arguments. So what is, what is the view that I think is most plausible? And this is, speaking of earthly rulers, that's not denying that there isn't an unseen uh, spiritual world. There certainly is. Scripture makes that clear. We know that. We believe that. God is spirit. He has created spirit beings. So we know that there is a spiritual world. But I don't believe that, that that's what is taking place here. I believe this is speaking of earthly rulers. And there's a couple of reasons for that. It's not uncommon to see rulers as being referred to with that phrase, Elohim. In a couple places, just where it's really clear, in Psalm 58, verse 1, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? This is clearly speaking of earthly rulers. There's also a passage in Exodus chapter 22, in verse 9, which reads this, For every breach of trust, whether it is an ox or a donkey for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost things of which one says, this is it, that in the case of both parties shall come before God. That's the ESV translation. But if you're looking at a King James Version, they don't translate that as God. They translated it as judge. It's actually the, the word God, Elohim, again. Now, what is the right translation? The NSB also translates it as judge. Uh, those translators saw that that Elohim should be translated as judge and not God. The SV sees it more from this perspective that it's speaking of going before God at the tabernacle. But it's just to make the point that it's not uncommon to see in other places in Scripture where rulers are actually called Elohim. This other thing is, is in, in verse 7 Notice what it says. Nevertheless, like men, 
you shall die and fall like any prince. And that, 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 that qualification of any prince. So these that are referred to gods are referred to as having a like nature of humanity. They will die. The spiritual world doesn't die. So why then are they referred to in this manner? Why would they be referred to in this manner? Well, I think that the clearest statement on this comes from Romans. Listen to the language of Romans chapter 13 very carefully. I know that over the last few years, Romans 13 has become very familiar to our, our minds because of recent government overreaches on the church but, and over society in general. But, but just listen carefully. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So this is speaking of a special institution of God. Those that, have, uh, those that exist have been instituted by God. This is a very clear statement of the special nature of a ruler. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant. That's literally God's deacon. He's your God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Notice how this connection to what God has sovereignly instituted, that these are servants of God. In other words, God who is just, God who never shows partiality, God who never accepts a bride, he has earthly means that are supposed to institute justice. They are to be his representatives. So rulers have a massive responsibility, they also have tremendous power over people. And they often subject people to rules, regulations that they themselves are not subject to. And so we get upset. We get angry about that. So this is speaking of rulers. This is not speaking of the spiritual world. In fact, according to one commentator, he said there was practical unanimity excuse me, in the church as to the interpretation of the psalm, except for, 100, for the last about 100 years ago, is when people started to question this interpretation. And over the last couple years, a, several popular books have come out that have reinterpreted this. But Jesus also quotes this psalm in John chapter 10, in verse 33, we read these words. The Jews answer, let me back up, in verse 31, John 10, 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 
Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Now when Jesus says, Is it not written in your law? And he includes the Psalms. He's telling us that the, the, the entirety of the Torah is considered as the Old Testament because he's including the Psalms here. And he says, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Now listen to what Jesus says. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? And so, in other words, Jesus' argument is if God's word refers to those that were rulers, that were not gods, but were to practice justice on his behalf, then it's not illegitimate for Jesus to say this of himself. And that's what his whole entire point is. Calvin makes this point that God calls them gods and calls them Elohim to remind them of the dignified role they assume. But you have to admit that you get angry when you hear that, don't you? Because we've experienced wicked leaders and wicked rulers. And we say that there's certain rulers that, that do not rule with any dignity at all. And in fact, oftentimes when wicked rulers that we don't like do something that's actually good, we can't even give them an attaboy, can we? So what do we do? Verse 8 is our prayer. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. It's a prayer for God to rule. It's also a prayer for God to install just rulers and to remove wicked rulers. That is a legitimate prayer. And if you're, if you're ever here on a Wednesday night, we pray that prayer almost every Wednesday night. Lord, would you raise up rulers that will act according to your word and remove wicked ones? I think this is what we see in Psalm 2. In verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a call for Christ himself to, to rule. And what have we seen here? Rulers that fell to act justly, those that fell to kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in your way, as Psalm 2 says, will die and fall into ruin. And so what is our prayer? when we experience wicked rulers. When it seems like the, the nation you're in and you love is on a free fall to destruction, what's your prayer? Lord, come. Lord, come. Come and judge these wicked rulers that scorn your word. What do we learn from this? couple of things. Until Christ returns, 
there is a political reality that we live under. And it will remain until Christ returns. But what gives us hope is the ultimate reality of Christ's sovereign rule currently and his rule that will be consummated when he returns. And so we have two great comforts in these things. Christ is the chief magistrate. Christ is ruling right now. And that wicked rulers will face judgment. And we have to know that. Adolf Hitler didn't escape judgment when he committed suicide. Stalin, when he went to sleep and didn't wake up, didn't escape justice. Mao Zedong did not escape justice. They are eternally before a just God. And any wicked ruler that oppresses the poor and takes bribes and shows partiality will stand before a holy God that will not take their bribe. And they will not be able to appeal to him. We're facing nothing new when we face wicked rulers. When we get consumed with these things, we just have to recognize we have songs to sing, and we just read it. We have prayers to pray, and we just read it. There have been corrupt rulers from the beginning, and there will not cease to be corrupt rulers until Christ comes back. And what we also recognize is that this psalm was a means of comfort to people that were currently being oppressed. And so they would sing this as they faced oppressors, and they prayed that God would avenge them. So let me ask you, should this not lead us to prayer for our leaders on a regular basis? So Paul calls us to pray for all sorts of people. Pray for our rulers. And when we pray for our rulers, do we pray for their success? Well, it depends on what their plan is. I don't pray for the success of a wicked ruler, nor should you. I pray that the Lord remove them or change their heart. I pray for the success of a righteous ruler, one that rules righteously. And there's something else here. Because we do live in, in such a time that is so politically charged, as we read a psalm like this, and we, we, we think of, we hear po political rulers, we see injustice, we see all of these things, it's inevitable for us to disassociate this from, say, current events, right? That we think of those people that we may despise. But if that's our only thought and it stops there without considering how we may be guilty, then we close off the idea of our own need of forgiveness in a Savior. Let me give you an instance of this. In James chapter 2, James is writing to the church writing to Christians, those that profess Christ. Notice what he says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Very interesting that James says you've become judges with evil thoughts. Why? Over showing partiality. He goes, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, or not the rich, the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. I want you to think about this for a second. He's addressing Christians. He calls them brothers. If Christians will show partiality in the church, what would happen if you gave that same Christian almost unlimited power as a civil magistrate? Would they just all of a sudden then act righteously? Let's see, we read Psalm 82, and we can very quickly point the finger, and justly so, at wicked rulers. But as we point our finger at them and say we have wicked rulers, we have to search our own hearts and say, do I ever show partiality? Do, do I ever act unjustly? Do I ever overlook the destitute those that are created in God's image and that have been bought with the same blood of Christ that I've been bought with. And if I do, and if I'm guilty of that, then I've just entered into the realm of these wicked judges and acted like them myself. Whether that, rather than acting like one that is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We know that we fail to show impartiality, but oftentimes are partial. We know this is wicked in your sight, so we thank you that Christ never showed partiality. That Christ was perfect in all ways and spilt his blood on behalf of those that would show partiality they would overlook the destitute and the poor. But Christ never did, and Christ never will. And so our hope is not in how well we may lead in our small little kingdoms we have, but our hope is in Christ, the perfect King and ruler. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would stand, take your hymns of grace and